Hey folks, and welcome to tonight's podcast. So tonight I'm doing this podcast as kind of a, I don't want to say a follow-up, but I did a podcast uh, last week about the rigging inspection from hell, and I had a couple of good friends reach back to me with some feedback, and I also had um, a young man uh, from a university reach out and said, could you basically describe the way I used to do a rigging inspection from the start to finish? Before I get started, I want to do a little bit of house cleaning. In my earlier podcast, I mentioned that you need a fire curtain when the distance from the stage floor to the bottom of the steel is greater than 50 feet, and it's actually from the stage floor to the ceiling. So uh, if your I-beams are like 30 inches tall up there, it's actually from the floor to the ceiling, not the bottom of the I-beam. And another thing that I want to do a little house cleaning on was... In Indiana, when I used to do inspections, fire curtains were kind of, I guess, made custom. People just kind of made it up. And I would mentioned that on a couple of the inspections I did that the overweight bar on the fire curtain rode it all the way down to the last two feet and then stopped. And one of my best friends, who I think is one of the best theater consultants in the world, pointed out that you know, the uh, old J.R. Clancy drawings and I believe the H&H drawings showed that that overweight bar was only supposed to travel like 8 to 12 feet, just enough to get the curtain going to, you know, because the curtain, you know, already was right on that line of being, you know, balanced perfectly so that it would bring it all the way in, but the bar didn't ride it all the way in so it wouldn't go, you know, crashing to the ground and you wouldn't have to try to pull that 150 pound or 200 pound bar all the way back up when you would reset the fire curtain. So I wanted to get that out of the way. So I'm going, I've got my old notes here from when I used to do fire curtains in front of you folks. So bear with me. If you hear me ruffling papers, I apologize. I don't know how sensitive my microphone is, but And I'm also going to try to go through this pretty quickly, folks, because this could literally be a two-hour podcast, and I'm going to try to shoot for under 30 minutes, but I'm guessing we might go 40. So first thing I would do when I walked into a theater to do a theater inspection is I wanted to talk to the people that operated the rigging system, and I would take some notes and ask them, you know, basically, what are you hearing, feeling, seeing? What are your thoughts about the system? Why are we having this inspection? It, was there something broken or were you worried or had somebody said something? And I would write all those notes down. And then once I was done with that, I always either asked for a volunteer to work with me or I brought somebody with me. I never did a theater inspection by myself. Two reasons. It's hard to run line sets and be near a head block or a loft block or somewhere else in the theater if you're one person. It's also dangerous. If you're doing an inspection by yourself and you were to fall or hit your head or get hurt, somebody might not find you until they can smell your body decomposing up in that theater. So, and I'm joking there, folks, but I'm not. So, Here's the thing. As soon as I'm done talking to them, I would walk around the theater and look at how clean the theater is. I'd look in the arbor well. I would get a sense of how they take care of this theater. Now, of course, I wouldn't say anything out loud if they if I thought that they, you know, were really trashing the theater and weren't taking care of it. Um, but, you know, I would just kind of do an overall observation and take notes of the cleanliness of the theater. Then I'd start at the curtain. And... When I say start with a curtain, I meant all the drapery folks. I would run all the travelers. I would feel, listen, look. I would inspect the rope, the operating line. I would look up and inspect all the carriers. Did they have their backpacks on? 
I would make sure there's no tape on that rope because that rope can get up and get jammed in a backpack on a curtain carrier. And next thing you know, you can't open or close your curtain. I would look at the single end pulley, the double end pulleys. I'd look at the master uh, carrier and the terminations on the master carrier. And, you know, overall, just make sure mechanically no, no bent curtain track. Uh, you know, I would even visually look and see when the curtains open, how big the curtain was and kind of guesstimate, guesstimate how much weight is on that panel and are they overloading the loft block? I don't know how many times in my life I've seen rigging systems designed where they have like a 50 foot proscenium, which is like 65 feet of, of fabric. And they park that all stage right and left when the curtains open. The curtain's 20-some feet tall. And they have just right there overloaded that loft block. You know, that loft block might be a 500-pound loft block or a 750-pound loft block. But by the time you put the weight of the track and the batten and you open that big, thick, main act curtain, velour curtain, it's very easy that they've gone over the 8 to 1 of that loft block. Um I mean, over the, the, not the eight to one, over the rating of the loft block, which is normally rated to eight to one. So it's not going to probably fail, but you're just not doing it right. Okay. So then I would go through and look for all the curtain uh, and, and keep in mind, I'd inspect every traveler like this. Then I brought in the borders and uh, the uh, uh, legs and I would check for holes, burnt holes, stuff like that in it. And then I'd look at the flame retardant uh, and ask them if they got a certificate on file, how old that is. And if there was some loose fabric on the back of a curtain sometimes, and what I mean, like sometimes when they would sew the hems and stuff, you'd have like an inch of extra fabric there. I would just remove a little bit of it and light a lighter to it and see if it support a flame. And if it did, I would say you really need to have somebody look at these to see if they need to be reflame proofed or, or, you know, if the curtains are just so old, you need to replace them. So I would then go from the drapery over to the locking rail. And first of all, I'd look and see if all the index cards are in place and how you take care of it. If they were labeled right, if it says electric, was there really an electric there? Then I looked and see how the locking rail was bolted to the floor. Did any of the bolts look loose? Did any of the anchors look like they're pulling up? Is it straight? Okay. And um, I would then look at the rope locks and look for wear and tear and stuff like that and just make sure everything worked right. Now, look, if all the rope locks were a little bit loose, I would go ahead and get my C-wrench and just adjust them there for them. I wouldn't write that up and come back and try to charge them any money. Folks, I came from working in theater. Theater people don't have a lot of money. Okay, when I was a technical director, I could barely afford my lamps and gels, uh, a microphone, things like that. So, you know, if, if you're doing a theater inspection, uh, well, first of all, folks, I want to lay down some ground rules real quick. And I should have said this at the beginning. You need to know the type of person doing your theater inspection. I love, and, and I may get some heat when I say this, okay, but I loved doing theater inspections and telling people to go get quotes because I was always nervous that they would think I was an opportunist. There are dealers in this country that will do a theater inspection and make crap up so they can charge you an enormous amount of money to repair your equipment. I have seen that. I don't even want to say what state because people are going to think they know who I'm talking about, but they're absolutely in the past are opportunists that will do a rigging inspection and then tell you need $30,000 in repair when you really don't need that 30,000. That's the reason I say always get multiple opinions to me, the most, how do I say this? 
the people that, that are the most trusted in doing theater inspections are theater consultants. They don't have a horse in the race. They're completely uh, unbiased. Uh, not all theater consultants have any idea how to do a theater inspection, but there are a lot that do know how to do theater inspections. And so I'm not saying every theater consultant you meet on the street, you would say, hey, come do a theater inspection because they might say, well, no, I don't do that. But one of my colleagues do. OK, but and then you have dealers. And I always try to stress, if you're going to have a dealer do your theater inspection, have them write it up and then go go get multiple quotes for what it's going to cost. There's manufacturers that are going to do that. Same thing. Get multiple quotes on what it's going to cost to do the repairs. Okay. Don't get ripped off. Like I said, when I worked in theater, we could barely afford our lamps and gels. Okay. So now let's get back to the rigging inspection. We just finished on the locking rail and the rope locks. I would then go to the guide system on the wall. And it's either a J bar or a T bar in most planets. And you want to basically visually, I always carried a pair of binoculars with me, folks. Some of these, these T-bar and J-walls are 80 feet tall. So please do not get a block and tackle and a harness and hang from the loading platform and rappel up and down the wall unless you're an expert repeller and then still don't do it, okay? Get a man lift or a personnel lift or something if you have to get to the uh, guide wall. But 90% of the time you won't. You can visually inspect it. And you can tell if the knee clips, the knee braces, the horizontal wall battens, if all the parts that make up that guide system are properly attached to the wall. Now, in all the 200-ish inspections I did, there were a lot from the 70s and 80s where they welded the knee clip and the knee brace to the horizontal wall batten. And then they would weld a steel uh, T-bar to the wall. Problem with this is when the building would settle and all buildings settle, it would put the system in tension and then you would start getting stuff not working. So that's the reason bolt together stuff like H&H &H Specialties and J.R. Clancy did was just such the right direction to go. So you got to inspect that guide wall. Um, and then from the guide wall, I would then go to the tension block, which is under the arbor. I would inspect to make sure it moves freely up and down, that the tension block shoes or guides and all of that are right. Nothing's cracked. I would then go to the arbor. I would check the if it's got the traditional arbor that have the rods and nuts. Make sure those are tight. Make sure there's lock nuts in there. Um, make sure that um, there's spreader plates on the arbor and they're put in the right place. Make sure that the batten weight is denoted by a different color weight in the bottom of the arbor. That way, when they're unloading an arbor, they don't accidentally unload all the weight and they've got an out-of-balance uh, condition. Um, check the arbor to make sure it's not tweaked from being crashed or bent or anything like that. Check the guide shoes. Check the top and bottom for cracks. If it's cast iron, look for cracks. If it's steel, look for um, any uh, where it's deformed at all, okay? Then I'd go from the arbor to the head block. I'd always check to make sure it's bolted tight. You wouldn't believe how many inspections I've done where the head block is not tight. If it's an upright system, I would say 2 or 3% of all the ones I inspected, the head, at least one head block was not tight, okay? If it's underhung, normally they're tight because people were afraid of them falling off if, if it's an underhung head block. Um, make sure the fleet angles are right. Make sure that the shivs look good. If it's Nalatron, there's no cracks or split. If it's cast iron or steel, just make sure it's not rusting apart or falling apart. Well, if it's steel, if it's cast, you're probably okay. I would then move on to the loft blocks, inspect all the loft blocks. 
Uh, if there's sag bars, folks, and if you don't know what a sag bar is, it's basically either nylon or wood that keeps all the cables that are going to the next lock blocks from hanging down and in, in fouling up the system. I hate them. I'd rather have uh, multi-groove head blocks or, I mean, multi-groove loft blocks to me are the greatest way to go, but it's more expensive. Uh, idlers are fine, but make sure you inspect the idlers because if an idler locks up and doesn't turn, you can feel a lot of resistance in the rigging system. Uh, if there's mule blocks up there, make sure the fleet angles are right. Make sure they're secured right. Make sure that everything looks good on mule blocks. I have seen tons of mule blocks that because of the gravity of the way the mule blocks is hanging down, it's fouling up the fleet angles and it causes excessive wear on the shiv. Then, so, so stay with me. I went tension block, arbor, head block, loft block. Now I'm going to go back down to the batten. Going to check the batten and terminations. If it's got trim chains, folks... I am, now look, this is where your mileage is going to differ, okay? There are trim chains that have been installed on battens since the 60s and have not fallen off the ceiling. I know a high school that got a quote to replace all their trim chains of $40,000. And the bottom line is all they needed to do is take a 3 inch bolt and put through the chain. That way, if the clasp thing or like you have on a dog leash broke, there wasn't a single point of failure. Okay, so there are ways to bring old technology up to modern terms. But folks, I have never seen one of those trim chains in 43 years of doing this fail. Now, maybe you have, maybe you as a listener, you're like, yep, Damon, I've seen one fail. I have never seen one fail. But if there's not that safety bolt going through it, it's, it's a nice, it's a three inch bolt with a couple of washers and a, a nylotron or a nylock, not nylotron, but a nylock um, or a lock nut on there and you can at least bring it up to some form of a standards. Okay. Then I would go back over to the Arbor and I would inspect the terminations at the top of the Arbor, the way the aircraft cable is, is terminated there. If there's quick links used or how that's done, make sure it is up to basically a resemblance of what we call codes or recommendations. You know, a non-rated quick clip up there is dangerous. A uh, So I don't want to just know what you're doing if you're inspecting it, okay? If you've never inspected a rigging system, do not use this podcast to go out and do a rigging inspection, okay? Then I would go back up to the head block, and I have three scarves that I used to carry with me, and I would throw them over each lift line and have my helper uh, test and run the system up and down. Look, in my earlier podcast, folks, I use the word exercise a lot, like exercise a fire curtain, a fire curtain system or exercise a line set. That comes from my NPD world and my aviation world. What I mean is test, which means operate it. So I would have them run the arbor up and down and I would check to see if this silk caught any place on the lift line telling me that there was a frayed cable. It's seven by 19 uh, galvanized aircraft, which means there's uh, seven bundles of 19 fibers. If one of those fibers had broken, that most of the time that silk cloth is going to catch it. Um, and then I do a full system test. So this is what I've had people say, well, why wouldn't you test the system first? I said, the reason I do it this way is a guy that knows more about rigging than I'll ever know in my life. He's been doing rigging way before Jesus had a paper out. Um, he said, Damon, if you go in and you operate all the rigging sets and you don't hear anything, feel anything or see anything, you tend to assume the system's in good health. And you may not look as closely as you do if you inspect the system first and then test the line sets. So always test the line sets at the end. 
Now, folks, one thing you need to understand, there are hemp rigging systems that are inspected one way. There's counterweight, like I just described. There's wire guide systems. There's compound systems. There's motorized systems. If you don't know what you're doing in rigging, you shouldn't be doing an inspection. If you don't know what you're doing in rigging, you shouldn't be operating a rigging system. You shouldn't touch it. Okay? So, what I want to do now is I want to describe to you the hardest part of all the inspections I've ever did. And folks, this is where fun goes to die if you don't know what you're doing. And I felt, folks, and history has proven that I've known what I was doing. You know, sometimes people say that's egotistical, but don't ever be ashamed of being awesome if you've done something for 40 years. Okay. And I know that sounds really like I'm bloviating there, folks, but I've stayed in one industry since 1981 and I love the theater industry. Uh, one thing uh, that my best friend and I talked about last night, which I think is one of the greatest theater consultants in the world, uh, him and I are talking. And one thing they don't teach you in college is that in theater, you could be a salesperson. In theater, you could be a theater consultant. In theater, you could be a salesperson. You could, uh, maybe I just said salesperson. There's so many different things you can be in the theater industry that just being an LD or a technical director or a master electrician may end up getting boring one day. But now I'm going to talk about the hardest part of an inspection, and that is the fire curtain. And folks, I'm not up to speed on all the most recent codes, but I believe that technically you're supposed to close your fire curtain when the theater is not being operated at night. If you're going home and the theater is not being used, you're supposed to lower that fire curtain which will be virtually impossible with 50% of the high schools in the world that have braille systems that literally take 30 minutes to run that curtain up and down. So I'm guessing there's a grandfather clause and I could be wrong, but a fire curtain does several things, folks. One is it's a visual barrier. Two, it's a barrier to keep fire from getting into the audience chamber. Three, well, I shouldn't number these. These are all equally important. It's prevent smoke and gases from getting into the audience chamber too. My theater consultant friend reminds me of that every time I talk about uh, fire curtains, that these smoke and gases are one of the most important things to keep away from people. <laughs> so when I would inspect a fire curtain, I honestly felt like I needed to go get a couple of Tums because I knew I would get some heartburn or my anxieties would flare up. Because the thing is, is fire curtains are rarely tested. And the reason they're rarely tested is because most people don't know if they're going to get the thing to go back up. Now, when I worked at SGTV and AV, I always carried around a couple of half ton chain hoist with me. And I always knew if I, you know, uh, I almost said the word exercise again. I always knew if I was going to test a fire curtain that if I couldn't get it up, at least with a chain hoist, I could, you know, get it back up. And, and folks, there are so many different fire curtain designs out there. There's hydraulic head blocks. There is motorized systems. There's the dash pot. There is the, you know, overbalance bar uh, with a dash pot. There is so many different ones. And some of them were designed by that particular manufacturer uh, when they were just working with an architect and there wasn't even a theater consultant involved. So, it could just be a fire curtain that come flying down, didn't decelerate, crashed into the ground, bounced five feet in the air, and then finally settled into the ground. And they said, that's good to go. Well, that didn't meet any type of any 
of the NFPA or um, any code out there, okay, IBC, whatever code it is. Um, but here's how I inspected a fire curtain. And look, your mileage could vary. And folks, I stress, I don't know how to stress how important it is that you don't touch a fire curtain unless you have absolutely a good understanding of how to get your ass out of trouble in case everything goes wrong. So number one, I would visually inspect it. Okay, I would walk around, uh, and I'm also going to talk about a high school inspection I did once with this lady who was one of the nicest ladies in the world, but she's a drama teacher and didn't even know she had a fire curtain. So I would always visually inspect it. I would then make sure I understood how the mechanism worked and made sure that um, the guide cables and the smoke pockets were free, make sure that, um, you know... There's so much, so many different types of fire curtains, folks. I don't know how to describe it, but you would sit there with your flashlight and your binoculars and inspect everything. Okay. And then you would basically clear the stage and you would make sure nobody's around that you don't want to see a disaster. And I would, you know, it said cut rope. Of course, I'm not going to cut the rope. I would just unbolt the flange from the floor, which would put slack in the rope which then the mac mechanism should engage. Your fire curtain would come down. Um, the codes are changing some right now on how fast and how much time it's got to come down. But it's got to come down and decelerate and close. Okay, I'm just going to say that in the most simplest of layman's terms without getting into all the code junk. And then you need to be able to take it back up, lock it back in place, and then I would test it again. And I would normally test the fire curtain three times. Um, rarely, rarely did the fire curtain work right at all. Rarely. I, I think maybe once out of eight fire curtains I would inspect in Indiana and Kentucky worked right. The first test. So, um, you know, if it's a Braille system, they're all over the places. Some of them had a hand crank. Some of them had a big, like 48 inch shiv up in the ceiling on the side of the braille winch box and you had this rope hemp rope that came down through a one foot pulley on the ground and when you pulled that rope that's how you pulled the fire curtain back up and if you pulled it down that's how you would test it uh, i mean not test it but close it and if you pulled the pin or cut the rope then it would unwind itself and come down and a lot of those braille systems were up in that channel so long above the proscenium that when you cut the rope or not cut the rope, but release the pressure, they wouldn't come down. So it was just um, fire curtains are a nightmare, folks. But now I want to tell you about an inspection. Um, well, and if it's motorized, you got to inspect the clutch. And there's all kinds of things in fire curtains, folks. I'm not going to spend a lot of time because I don't want this podcast to go on too long. Uh, but I want to tell you an inspection I did. So I was at STTV and AV. I had a lady call me. I don't want to name, say the name of the high school, but it was in Southern Indiana. And she said, um, hey, Damon, I was given your name by superintendent so-and-so from another school system that you could come look at our rigging system. I said, yeah. I said, are you having a problem? She goes, well, some of the line sets are pretty hard to move. Um, but, you know, I, I just want someone to come look at it. I said, so is this a repair or an inspection? She goes, what's the difference? I said, well, an inspection was I inspect the entire system. She goes, I, yeah, let's get an inspection. What's it going to cost? And I said, $200. And um, she's like, yeah, I, I can get that money. I'll, I'll get it out of, you know, the service for the building. So I walked into the theater 
and this was a very old, I'm not going to say the name of the manufacturer, folks, but it was a very old rating system. And I, you know, got my little check sheet out and started going through it. But I want to kind of back up a little bit. I, I kind of jumped the gun here. When I first showed up, she had a rehearsal that was just ending. I sat in like the second seat of the auditorium watching the rehearsal. And when I looked to stage right, which is house left, in the smoke pocket for the fire curtain looked like hammered in was a two by six piece of wood. So I scanned to stage uh, left, which is house right. And there's another one. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? So when it was over, she came out and said, Damon, I'm really excited you can come here. And I said, you know, I'm going to be here until probably nine. And you said the custodians are here till 10. And she goes, yeah. She goes, I'll hang around if you want me to. And I said, why? Well, I do need someone, uh, either the custodian, like I told you on the phone, or somebody to kind of be my assistant to, to move some things when I'm climbing around the system. And she goes, I could do it or the custodian. So this really cool custodian showed up, guys. And I tell you, um, he reminded me of like a 1970s hippie rocker dude. I mean, he was absolutely hilarious. So we all three stood there and I said, what's that piece of wood doing in your smoke pocket? And she goes, what's a smoke pocket? I said, it's for your fire curtain. And she goes, what's a fire curtain? And I'm not putting her down when I say this, folks. Okay, but many of these drama teachers in high school theaters had no idea how these systems worked. And I said, well, fire curtain is designed that if there's a fire, the curtain can come down and keep the flames on the stage from getting out to the audience. And I said, there's fuse links up there. And as my theater consultant friend reminded me last night, you know, they don't go up until they're like 170, 179 degrees, which means smoke could be all over the room and people choking to death before the fire curtain can ever come down. So the fuse links are only there as a backup for if nobody's in the theater at night and there's a big fire and they're trying to keep the whole building from burning down. So I told her that, you know, there's fuse links, there's a rope you're supposed to cut. And I went stage right and there's the rope, but the knife that used to be hanging there had been stolen. So there's no way to cut the rope. And I told her, I said, well, normally you would cut this rope and if you had fire. But I said, look, in high schools, I normally tell everybody just to run. You know, I don't want anybody to be heroes. I said, unless you're really trained on, on what to do, it's best just to get out of the out of the theater. Now, if you have a performance going on where the audience is completely full, you might want to try to drop that fire curtain because it's not going to come down until those fuse links see like, like you know, 190 degrees or 180 degrees. And uh, she, you know, and I, I said, I'll show you what the fuse links are. So I got my flashlight. And this is what's funny, folks. The main act curtain all the way open when I aimed my flashlight up above the proscenium wall in big eight-foot letters that said asbestos. She's like, oh, my gosh, it's right. I've seen that. She goes, is that real asbestos? And I said, yeah, as long as it's not disturbed, you're probably okay. But I said, that comes down if there's a fire. And, folks, this ended up being kind of a disaster. And it it's one of those things that if you don't know what you're doing, you better really know how – you need to have a plan B to get your ass out of trouble. So I inspected the entire fire curtain. Well, actually, I went through her whole rigging system first. I spent about an hour and a half going through the whole rigging system. I found that her um, sag bars up at the ceiling had big grooves cut in them from the cables, and they were actually catching the cable. That's where her resistance in the system was. So what I told her I could do is just flip those over 
uh, turn them 180 degrees and remount them, and they would be good until the cable cut them the rest of the way in half. But like I said you wouldn't have any resistance. Um, her rating system was actually in pretty good shape. And um, it might have been two hours it took me to go through the entire rigging system. I, I can't remember. It was only like 28 line sets. It wasn't a huge system. And then I got then I got to the fire curtain. And on the fire curtain, folks, it was one of these things that I thought I knew how it worked. There was a big dash pot. There was a overbalance uh, bar on it. And I told her I really don't want to leave without testing this this is part of the inspection and she goes well there's nothing in here till tomorrow at 3 30 that's when our next rehearsal is and i probably should have said look i should come back after your musical but i didn't i was young and dumb guys uh, and girls listening so i went over and i would never cut the rope so i undid the four lag bolts at the floor and put slack in the system and it didn't come down and I'm like, do you have a personnel lift? And they're like, yeah, we do. And so me and this, I wish I could remember the custodian's name because he was so cool. And he was just wanting to learn everything about the theater. He was like, oh, I've always loved the theater. And he was just really a cool cat. So we went to the gym, got this man lift. And folks, this is another part of theater that you need to really be careful so you don't die. This man lift was the scariest thing I'd seen in my life. It was so jury-rigged to get the all four green lights to come on. I almost didn't want to ride it. I thought, here I am going to die in theater because of a man lift or a personnel lift and not because of theater. So I rode it up to the mechanism for, that is supposed to release the fire curtain. I know this is going to be hard for you to visualize, but basically there was a clue that would run up and down a wire guide thing uh, and as it would impact another clue, it would then engage the dash pot. But there was like a teeter-totter thing at the top of this with a big weight on it. So when you cut the rope, the rope would put slack, the weight would pull the teeter-totter down, which would release the uh, clue uh, that actually it released a cable that went to the overweight bar. The overweight bar would hit the top of the fire curtain, get the fire curtain moving, and as a fire curtain got halfway down, then the clue would engage a clue that was attached to the dash pot cable and engage the dash pot. So I went up on the man lift and look, folks, I don't know if this system ever worked from day one because the bolt, the three quarter inch bolt that was going through this teeter totter thing was so tight that with both hands, I couldn't rotate it. So I started to loosen it. And as it started to move i then realized uh-oh i'm 40 feet in the air and now this fire curtain wants to come down and i'm up on a lift so i tightened the bolt back up so it couldn't move i went back to the floor i re-screwed screwed the four lag bolts back into the floor so that the rope had tension i went back to the top loosened up this three-quarter inch bolt went back to the floor pulled out the four lag bolts released the line and here come the fire curtain and it wasn't falling that fast. It was a good speed. I'm like, oh, holy crap, this thing's going to work. Then the dash pot engaged and like a volcano squirting out of the top of the dash pot was this sludge and black crap bubbling up out of it. Some of it squirting. Um, I walked backwards so it wouldn't get me, you know, it wouldn't mung me or, or slime me. Fire curtain hit the ground a little bit hard. And she says, oh, my word, that was quite exciting. <laughs> the the, the uh, custodian's like, is all that junk supposed to come out of that? And I'm now I'm depressed, folks. I'm like, what the hell? 
I said, no, it's not supposed to do that. And I said, your dash pot is really messed up. And he goes, is that a problem? And I said, no, but I said, I, I got to now get this fire curtain back up. And I think I can. Well, folks, this is another thing. This fire curtain had a weird rope coming down that went down and looped back up. And when you would pull that rope, that's what pulled the, the cable that would pull the overweight bar up and also engage the little clue thing that would then pull the fire curtain up. It was the craziest thing I'd ever seen. But that overweight bar was like 200 pounds. And it was really hard for the three of us to get that fire curtain back up and me get it latched. So now it's like 8.30 at night. And there was a hardware store. Now back then, folks, in the 90s, hardware stores had everything. Today they suck. And they suck bad. So I drove to the hardware store and said, do you have rubber O-rings here? And they said, actually, we do. And they had the, I think it was a two-inch diameter O-ring. Now, keep in mind, those were stretched up to about two and a quarter inches without you ripping them. And I looked at the top of the dash pot and measured, and I thought I needed two-inch O-rings, which I didn't. So I got the O-rings. I went back to the school. Now it was about nine o'clock. And I said, I just want to take the top of this dash pot off and see what I can service on it. And he's like, okay. And I couldn't service anything on it. So I unbolted the dash pot from the floor. I undid the three eighths inch cable that went through the top of it. I drug the dash pot into the scene shop that had a concrete floor laid on its side and said, can I come back? How early can I be here tomorrow morning? And the uh, custodian said, well, the custodians are in here at 6 a.m. And I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll be back about 7. Now, folks, this was two hours south of, well, hour and a half south of Indianapolis. So that night I was going to have to drive back to the shop, go to my apartment, go to sleep, and then get up early in the morning. I didn't get home until like 1030 that night from this school. No, it was probably closer to 11. Got up at like 5 so I could be there at 7. So I showed up at seven, <clears throat> took every bit of the dash pot apart, called up one of my friends, the guy who's been doing theater before Jesus had a paper route, and said, look, I got a dash pot here. It's on blank and blank high school. And I think I know how to completely take this thing apart and put it back together. But what would you recommend? And he said, well, make sure you get mineral spirits or something to really flush it all out because those little valves in there, if an obstruction hits it, it's not going to relieve the pressure and it's not going to work. It's not going to refeed, you know, the, the, the liquid back into the top of the cylinder or the piston. <clears throat> and I said, okay. So, and that was a pain in the butt. I basically had to get a broomstick and a bunch of rags and, and plunge out this cylinder like you would a war or one cannon. And the junk I got out of the inside of this folks was horrible. And then once I got it out, the piston had two rubber O-rings that were completely deteriorated. The top flange part had two O-rings and I measured them, went to the hardware store and they had the, what were they, six inch or six, they had the O-rings folks. So I went back to the school, put the O-rings in. My friend had told me to take a light grease and grease the cylinder or the piston. And I, you know, got it back in there and he said, use a straight 30 weight oil. And which on that one I did, he said a lot of them use different types of oil, but this one, 30 weight oil would work good. And he said, Damon, the modern 30 weight oil in like 1995, when this was, won't let those O-rings eat up uh, nearly as quick. But this system was 35 years old. So as long as it lasted another 20 years, I think they'd be fine, folks. 
So I got the dash pot put back together, drug it back across stage. The lady showed up really nice, and she actually brought Dunkin' Donuts. I'll never forget it. And uh, even though I have type 2 today, guys, I still love my Dunkin' Donuts. So I got the whole system re-rigged. And I told her, I said, so when I release this rope, this thing should come down. It should engage this and it should slow down and, and stop. And I released it and the fire curtain stopped like two feet off the ground. And it took me forever to adjust the little valve on it to get that dash pot to do exactly what was right. I still think that overweight bar was actually too heavy and it traveled too far. Like my friend, like I mentioned in my little disclaimer in the beginning, very few of the overweight bars that were installed, at least in Indiana and Kentucky, I think were done right back in the 60s and 70s. <clears throat> so to make a long story short here, folks, which I know I'm babbling a little bit here. If you don't know what you're doing in inspection, um, no, let me say it like this. If you're a theater director or a theater manager or somebody that just needs an inspection. Sometimes you need an inspection just so somebody on your staff isn't going to be liable for the inspection. You need an outside source. Okay. And I've always promised you when I do these podcasts, even though I still work in the industry, I'm not going to favor anybody I work for. I'm not going to be, uh, how do I say this? I want to be as independent as I can, but your first choice should be to call up a reputable theater consultant. And I have a list of many. If you ever need to reach out to me, I can tell you who to call. But there are theater consultants that can give you an unbiased, real inspection. And some of them will even bring in a local dealer to help exercise. I, oh, I said exercise again. Test your fire curtain. Um, cycle the fire curtain. Operate the fire curtain. So the thing is, folks, that um, you need to find somebody that knows what the hell they're doing. I don't know how many times I did inspections where they said, oh, yeah, last year we had an inspection and I had two sheets of problems with the rigging system. And I said, well, did, where's the write-up? And they'd give me the write-up and then a quote. So all this dealer was doing was going in there trying to replace gear that didn't even need to be replaced. And look, I know I am sound like I'm being harsh out there. And I know if you're some of my theater consultant friends, some of my best friends listening, you know what I'm talking about here. We've all seen this, okay? But go to theater consultants because they're unbiased. There are some manufacturers that have really good service departments that have really good people who are going to inspect it. And most of the time, they won't even give you a quote. They'll just do the inspection, hand you the inspection. And then if you want to get a quote from them, you could, or from a dealer or whoever, I always recommend getting two or three quotes, folks. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and here's another thing that can happen to you. You can get an inspection by a reputable person. And then somebody comes in there to fix it and they find more problems. Don't be mad at the inspector. The inspector is not going to take your whole system apart. Most inspectors will tell you when they're leaving, look, I wrote this up on everything I could visually find. If there's not a walk-on grid up there, they can't get to every loft block. Um, they're not going to take apart every loft block. You may have a Timken bearing in there that some dad greased that doesn't need to be greased, and it's locked up. Um, you know, I was talking to my best friend last night about, you know, side plates that had the holes in them were that hole was for when they had brass bushings and you could actually grease the head block or loft block. But when there was a hole in the side of one with a Timken bearing, that was a side plate left over from when they used to use bushings. 
because most Timken bearings don't have a, a, a way to service them. Uh, unless you're going to take the whole, well, even most of them are sealed. Now, I could be wrong here, folks, but all the Timken bearings I saw were actually sealed. There was no way to regrease that 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 bearing. So that's it, folks. I'm going to slowly wind this down now, but I just want you to understand that, and I did not go through everything on my checklist here. Okay, I could I could talk for two hours about doing rigging inspection, folks. I just want to generally uh, tell you that at the end of my sheet, I always went through this. I'd go through this. I would basically say, uh, number one, rope lock's good. Yep. Number two, hand lines, operating lines, or purchase lines, good. Yep. I would then go to, um, uh, you know, the floor tension block, good. Yep. Uh, counterweight arbor, good. Law, uh, uh, head block, good. If it's a six-line loft block system, you know, short line, short center, uh, center, 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 long, long center, long line, I'd go through all of those loft blocks, um, and then I would look at the attachment points of the batten and the arbor, and I would then and inspect the batten to make sure it's not bent or tweaked. Um, and, uh, you know, normally the guide system's in there somewhere, okay? But I would just go through the basics in a inspection, okay? So I hope you enjoyed this, folks. I'm just trying to plant some seeds out there. Now, look, if you're a college student or a high school student trying to figure out how to get in a theater, like I said earlier, most college uh, professors are going to teach you how to be an LD, a master electrician, a set designer, uh, all kinds of things that are part of an operational theater. They're not going to tell you how kick-ass sales can be. They're not going to tell you how kick-ass being a theater consultant can be. They're not going to tell you how kick-ass it could be to be part of new product development for a manufacturer. <clears throat> there are so many things to do in the theater. And like I've said in one of my other podcasts, you can make obscene money in this industry. If you're a commissioned salesperson that doesn't care if you spend 60 hours on the week, uh, if you're like a rep for a lighting manufacturer and you want to work 60 hours a week, you can make a crap load of money in this industry. That's if money that's um, isn't that important to you. Um, and I'm not meaning to degrade anybody when I say this, but I have some really artsy friends that their wives are lawyers and make like six or seven figures and they can play around in theater. And I think that's awesome. But on the other hand, if you want to, uh, you know, support yourself, if you want to make money in the theater industry, you can absolutely do it. Uh, you know, uh, theater consultants have rock star jobs. Uh, NPD is a rock star job. I love the sales side of it. I mean, I'm technically a trainer now where I train people on how the theater industry works. And it's, it's, it's a kick-ass um, path to take folks working in the theater. It doesn't just have to be on stage. Uh, working late nights, you know, working 60 hours. Well, actually, if you're a salesperson, you might work 60 hours a week. But there's so many different avenues in theater, folks. And that's the reason I'm doing these podcasts is for all these people that want to understand what my 43 years were like in this industry. And I am going to do a future uh, podcast on some other inspections I did and some things that would just blow your mind that I've seen. So stay tuned in the future uh, because some of this you just don't actually want to believe it's even possible that this went on in the theater and nobody got killed. So rock on, take care of each other, be nice to each other, go see a show, and I'll see you next time, everybody. Rock on and be safe. Bye-bye.